Today we're thinking of the third day of creation and the formation of land and life on planet and not earth. Imagine you moved into a new house. It had plenty of light, a beautiful sky view. The only issue with the property was the garden. It had no flowers and the water lay in puddles in your garden. After you'd emptied the boxes, assembled your new IKEA furniture, you decided to tackle this issue in your garden. You'd been thinking about it and you'd formed a plan. You need to begin by draining the garden to dry out the ground. And after successfully completing that project, you begin to arrange the vegetation. You buy mature plants and you plant mature trees and bushes in your newly drained garden. When finished, you walk around your landscape premises and you appreciate a job well done, a good job of landscaping in your premises. And it's a similar experience that we're considering here in day three of the days of creation. Here is landscaping on a massive scale. Here is God separating the waters and causing the dry land to appear. In our studies in this chapter of creation, we've thought of the absolute creation of God making things out of nothing. And then we moved on to the beginnings of the formation of those basic materials as God on day one commanded light to shine into the darkness. As in day two, God formed the expanse surrounding planet Earth. And we come now in day three to consider the formation of the seas and the emergence of the dry land. Let's think firstly of the seas, secondly of the dry land, and thirdly of the vegetation. Let's think firstly of the seas. God said, let the seas be gathered into one place. In dealing with the seas, we see the natural progression of God as he forms this place to be inhabited by mankind. He has begun with light. And then he's moved on to the atmosphere, the expanse around the planet. And now with reason and and logic, he moves on now to the formation of the seas and the emergence of the dry land. And perhaps it's this part of scripture that the, the apostle Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians 14 when he speaks of God being a God not of confusion but of order. He is addressing the the Corinthian church and he is thinking of the, the confusion of their church services, of people in different parts getting up during the service and people not having a logical, ordered church service for the congregation. And Paul speaks into that situation of confusion and says, this is not the type of God we worship. He is not a God of confusion. Let all things be done decently and in order. 
And perhaps within Reformed churches, which pride themselves in, in having the, the proper elements of worship, the, the psalms and the readings and the sermon and the benediction and the collection and the prayers. Perhaps we, we haven't thought out the liturgy of the service enough, the order of taking the congregation through from worshipping the glorious God down into the element of confession and then of forgiveness and then of dedication as Calvin and the reformers established. God is a God of order and the apostle argues that that order, that logical progression that we see in the first week of creation should be mirrored in church services as we also progress through these elements of worship. But, but a second striking feature of God gathering together in the seas is that he continues with his work of preparing this planet to be inhabited by humankind. He, he doesn't end his work early. He, he doesn't give up. He, he doesn't allow these amazing creations of light and the atmosphere to be sufficient. He goes on with his project. He keeps to his plan. He fulfills his vision. And, and what a challenge, what an example to us that this is because all of us have this scrapyard of ideas in our lives and in our minds, don't we? Projects that we've dreamed of, projects that we've begun, but projects that we've never finished. And here is God progressing into day three. He's made the light, how amazing. He's created the atmosphere, how incredible. But he keeps going and he gathers the seas and causes the dry land to appear. We've witnessed how difficult it is to fulfill a massive vision, haven't we, in recent days. Russia with its might, Russia with its numbers, Russia with its army, and yet there's been the frustration of their plan. There's been difficulties with the realisation of their vision. They're being frustrated and redirected. Their plans are not being fulfilled. But here is God, our God, on a far greater plan, on a far bigger scale. And he goes on with this incredible vision and purpose into this third day. But you say, what does the text mean? Gathered together into one place. And it is challenging for us because... The flood would come after this and perhaps there would be changes from the original creation of our world. Or perhaps there are clear similarities. That as we see the waters today and, and they're all interconnected with tubes and underground channels and by ways of rivers and seas. And the earth stands out of the waters today we're to see some connections and similarities with what God made on the third day the change was massive before the deep was all that was visible 
but now protruding through the deep is dry land soon to be inhabited by mankind and all by the mighty word of God. He said, and it came to pass, the seas. Secondly, the dry land. And there's two outstanding and gripping features of the dry land, isn't there? One is their formation. Can you imagine what happened that day? Can you enter into the the wonders of, of the dry land appearing through the surface of the deep? Henry Morris tries to do this and he writes tremendous chemical reactions got underway as dissolved elements precipitated and combined with others to form the vast complex of minerals and rocks making up the solid earth, its crust and core. Finally, surfaces of solid earth appeared above the waters and an intricate network of channels and reservoirs opened up in the crust to receive the waters retreating of the rising continents. Can you envisage it? Can you picture it? What a moment at God's word. Let the dry land appear. And that mass of mud and water which had been travelling through space suddenly begins to change. And the dry land emerges through the deep. But dry land, till now it had been suffused with water. It had been part of that watery mass created in the second verse. But suddenly... It is dry land, so made by God, suited for the vegetation which he is about to instill into that land, suited with the proper combinations and and, and minerals, readied for the grass to grow, the trees to be formed, the bushes to be planted there. At his word, the dry land, refined, readied, prepared, emerged above the waters. Henry Morris suggests that the heavy ground sunk down lower and the lighter soil came to the surface readied for the plantation which was to follow. Some of you may be asking, well, did this happen in 24 hours? The main point in this chapter is God created our world. But the more I study and read about this chapter, the firmer my conviction is that 24 hours was the timing. Reformed theologians would favour this position. Some Reformed theologians, E.J. Young, he argues from the installation of the sun on day four that the days from day four on at least were 24 hours. Louis Burkhoff argues from 
this third day that's the plantation of trees and bushes and grasses would die in a long period of darkness. Douglas Kelly argues from the pollination of plants that long periods of time between day three and when the insects are formed would cause the vegetation to disappear. Dr. John Currid, professor of Old Testament and Reformed Theological Seminary, he argues from the language of day three. He says of verse 12, theories which argue that God spoke the commands of creation at this point, but that they were not fulfilled until subsequent ages do great injustice to the text. The construction of the account is such that a command is given and then immediately accomplished. We're in the presence of the supernatural. Remember our studies in Mark and that evening that the sick came to the door of Peter's wife's mother's house and multitudes were gathered there and in an evening Jesus healed many that's what God can do the sea the vegetation sorry the dry land and thirdly the vegetation On this third day, life begins on the earth. Some scholars see three separate parts of vegetation here. The grass, the trees, the bushes. Others see the word vegetation explained uh, by the, the subsequent two entities, bushes and trees. But here God is providing for mankind, for the animals, for the birds, For humankind, fruit trees, vegetation, beauty, and sustenance. We spoke to the children about the the two critical words that are used in this third day. About the vegetation, one word being seeds. The plants with their seeds externally blown by the wind. Carried by the fur of animals to other places and growing The seeds of the fruit trees inside which the animals and birds eat and then spread out in in due course over creation. And this word seeds becomes a, a deeply theological word after the fall. The seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, the seed of the serpent. Already we're hearing the the echoes of grace on this third day of God's creation. And the other word is kinds, after their kinds. It's a word which scholars would argue is similar to species, categories. And it emphasizes the parameters which God is setting down in this third day of creation. The phrase is used ten times within chapter one of Genesis. The animals are after their kinds. The birds are after their kinds. The trees 
and bushes are after their kinds. John MacArthur draws our attention to how crucial this phrase is and how it speaks out against evolutionary theory in two ways. He maintains it indicates that there's not just one source of life as evolution argues and it indicates that God sets down limitations for each species, for each category. There's not jumping between species and category as they argue. There is macro evolution. There is development and change within the species, within the category. And so some of you might own a poodle and the wolf in the mountains is from the same category. Those extremities between your handbag dog and the wild wolf are all within the one category. Some people are black and others are white. And it's all within the same category, that range, that that variety. There's macro evolution. I've got that wrong, haven't I? Micro evolution is what we're referring to between the wolf and the poodle. But macro evolution is the jumping of the categories. The changing from fish to animal to human. There's no macro-evolution, big evolution, but there's micro-evolution, the distinctions within categories. After their kind, these parameters, these limitations that God has set down. The seas, the dry land, the vegetation, How are we to respond to this third day of creation? Well, the Bible reflects in this, particularly in the poetical books. And it draws us into the incredible works of God on this third day. And it directs us to respond in three ways to God's works here. We read in the book of Job. And here is God eventually speaking to Job. Job wanted God to speak to him. He wanted to meet with God. He wanted God to explain his dealings with him. And eventually God steps up and speaks to Job. And he takes him back to the third day of creation. And God The phrases are, shut in the sea with doors. When God said uh, to the waves, thus far shall you come and no further, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. God is focusing Job on this third day of creation when the dry land appeared and the seas were gathered together and limits were set. And God says to Job, where were you? Were you involved in that, Job? Did you have an input? Were you consulted? Were you part of that third day of creation, Job? Job, you're a small man. 
Your brain is finite. How could you begin to enter into or appreciate the incredible works of God? Often we say in a time of suffering, as we look at the situation in Ukraine, refugees fleeing with their children, sometimes we say, well, we don't have answers for that. But that's not the whole story, is it? We do have an answer. And the answer is the one that God gave to Job. I know what I'm doing. You can't understand what I'm doing. But I have a plan. I have a reason. I have a purpose. And so this third day of creation, with all its complexity, with all its power, with all its incredible control, is saying to us, be humble before the greatness of God. A second reflection on the third day of creation is in Psalm 104 that we'll be singing shortly. The psalmist looks back to this third day as as the psalmist does to the other days of creation. And this psalmist is, is full of praise. The psalm begins, bless the Lord. O my soul, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The psalm goes on to envisage what we were thinking of there. And Henry Morris was describing the the mountains coming out of the, the, the deep. He says, you covered it with deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains at your rebuke. They fled at the sound of your thunder. They took to flight. The mountains rose. The valleys sunk down to the place that you appointed for them. Here's the psalmist and he's entering in with his spirit enlightened, sanctified imagination into the third day of creation. And as he lingers there, he is filled with praise and worship and honor. As we reflect on this day, not only are we to be humbled before the greatness of God, we are to worship before the power of God. Evolution robs God of his praise. The psalmist here is showing us the way. Sometimes Christians struggle to assert God's creation. There's there's so many theories and arguments and opposition to that position. It nearly sticks in our throat when we try to say it. God made the world. But the psalmist is showing us the way to allow this teaching to grip us and enter into us. Bless the Lord, O my soul, to praise and to worship and to honor him. And the third place of reflection is in Proverbs and chapter 8, 22 to 31. And and what a scene it is. Wisdom is personified in that chapter. The writer in Proverbs in chapters 1 to 7 has been talking about wisdom and how important it is fearing the Lord, the beginning of wisdom in our families, in our speech, in our employment, in our community. We need wisdom. This right way of living and making choices. We need wisdom. And then in chapter 8, 
Wisdom is personified and wisdom is speaking. And where is wisdom in this chapter? On day three of creation. And in this chapter, we read these words that when God created, in verse 28, the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the seas its limit so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, here is Solomon reflecting on the third day of creation. The chapter goes on to say, wisdom speaking. Then I was beside God, like a master workman. I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always. Wisdom was there, guiding God, directing God, showing God wisdom as we know as as Jesus in that chapter. Side by side with God in his work of creation. And the intent of the chapter is, if wisdom can guide God through the complexities of that day, wisdom will guide us through the complexities of our day. In our family, in our workplace, in our speech, in our home. Day three of creation. We humble ourselves before the greatness of God. We praise the power of God. We desire the wisdom of God. Today there's got to be someone here Who's all at sea. You've had a run of heavy problems. Bad news has just kept coming to you. You feel you're sinking. This is our God. He divides the waters, lets the dry land. Appear. The solid ground, the terra firma, the place where you can walk. This very word, dry ground, is used in Exodus chapter 14 intentionally as the people face the Red Sea, nowhere to go as, as Egypt is pursuing them. This, this water straight before them, God once again separates the waters and the dry ground appears. This is our God. He separates the problems in our life and he brings us to a place of peace, a place of grace, a place of recognizing his sovereignty. 